Coming up, a food-centered conversation on the theology of eating with Baker and public theologian Kendall Vanderslice. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan on staff here at Upper House and your host. Well, we're thick in the middle of the holiday season, so a theologically informed conversation about food, meals, and community seems entirely appropriate. We're happy to welcome on this episode Kendall Vanderslice, a baker and a public theologian, to the podcast. And Kendall visited Upper House in November for a series of events, including hosting a community dinner for ministry workers and a series of baking events with the public. And we were happy to be able to sit down with her for a podcast conversation too, while she was here, where she talks about her original interests in food and in theology and the church and the broader thoughts she has about the intersection of food and faith. The conversation you're about to hear is hosted by Melissa on our team, uh, who planned Kendall's visit to Upper House and uh, hosted Kendall while she was here. And you'll get a flavor of the dynamism of both Kendall and Melissa in this conversation as they both talk about something they both love, food. And we'll also uh, link to one of Kendall's talks while she was here at Upper House in the show notes. And this was a talk that Kendall gave about the theology of the Eucharist and meals and the way that our thinking about the Eucharist and its original form as a full meal uh, can help revive our understandings of the church today. Okay, so just a bit more about Kendall before jumping in. Kendall Vanderslice is a graduate of Duke Divinity School and Boston University and Wheaton College. And in 2018, she was named a James Beard Foundation National Scholar for her work bridging food and religion. One of Kendall's books is called We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. And that's uh, a lot of what she talked about during her visit uh, at Upper House came from that book. That book was born out of five years spent researching churches that worship together around food and the table. And she speaks regularly at churches and colleges and universities about those topics. And her writing has appeared in Christianity Today, Christian Century, and many other related outlets. And Kendall also leads an organization called Edible Theology that you can find more about at edibletheology.com. So with all that said... Here's an Upwards conversation with Melissa Shackelford and Kendall Vanderslice. Kendall, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to learn more about your story. You are a baker, a writer, and a public theologian, which is a fascinating combination of professions that are now all intersecting in the work you currently do with a project called Edible Theology. But I know that that didn't all happen overnight. So we're going to dive into a little bit of your story and how this unfolded for you, your vocational discernment, um, and your thoughts about food, dinner, church, and more. Great. (laughs) So I want to start off by asking, 
What formative experiences in your childhood contributed to your passion for food, maybe even for community formation, or perhaps in those earlier years, your interests were elsewhere. So tell us where it all started. Yeah, well, I think, you know, if we, if we want to go back to the very beginning, I think it was clear that I was a big fan of food from my very first words. <laughs> my first word was cookie, <laughs> and my second word was candy. So clearly I had a sweet tooth from the beginning. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I have always been fascinated with food. I've always been fascinated with the kitchen. I would... Um, Anytime I went to stay with my grandmother, we would make cake together for her Sunday school class. Um, I went on a couple different field trips to bakeries growing up, and those really stuck out in my memory. I was just mesmerized by the process of making food. Um, so I, it has always been food, and making food was always something that interested me. Um, I think now, in retrospect, it's easy to see, like, oh, all of these experiences totally formed my my desire um, to become a baker, but I did not always think that that's what I wanted to do. It was really kind of in high school that that, that started to clarify. That's cool. Um, so one of your later uh, choices in the academic realm is to pursue a master's degree in theology. Um, but what was your experience with God like as a child or even um, your formative experiences around church with your family of origin? Yeah, so I am from a family of many pastors. Um, my grandfather is a pastor. Several of my uncles and cousins are pastors. Um, so I grew up in the church and grew up very closely tied to work in the church. Um, and I, for a long time, thought that I was going to go into missions. I was, I was curious about the world. I was real. I loved travel. Wanted to travel, um, and I just loved the Lord and loved sharing um, the joy that. My faith brought me with others, um, and so I thought for sure I would end up going into missions work. <laughs> um, so I, I have always had, a, I think, a very sweet relationship to the church. You know, I've grown up in churches that have been hard in various capacities, but my life has always been shaped by church community. I remember you referencing the story um, in your book, We Will Feast. You share briefly about that strong desire to go overseas, to live internationally, and you ended up spending, I think, a gap year in Africa. Tell us about that story and that initial kind of step of vocational discernment and, and going to a different country. Yeah, so I think like a lot of... Um of young people that are curious about the world and that um, love kind of missions work, I um, I have this deep passion to help save the world and fix the world. <laughs> and um, I, so I, as an 18-year-old, thought, you know, I don't want to go to college. I want to go travel. I want to go do missions work. Um, I'm going to go help fix the world. <laughs> and so I took a gap year after high school um, and lived on a ship in West Africa that um, did medical missions um, in West Africa. And that experience was incredibly valuable, very formational. It, it was that experience that helped to shape my sense of um, what my work would be. Most folks who took gap years and went to work on a medical mission ship um, were doing so because they were interested in careers in medicine. <laughs> and most of my fellow gap year folks went on to careers in medicine. Uh, I was one of the few who went in thinking, I want a career in food and I will come live on this ship in West Africa to figure out how to work in food. Wait, so how did those things intersect? How did food either bring you to Africa or how did you leave Africa thinking about food? Yeah, it's a great story. Um, part of me taking this gap year, I had to raise the funds myself to fly there, to pay for my living expenses, and to fly back home. Um, so I saved up all of my sort of graduation gifts that I received. I saved up my money for my summer jobs. Um, and 
when it was, we were about two weeks from departing and I had raised enough money to fly there and to stay, uh, all of the months that I was going to be living there, but I did not have the money to buy my plane ticket home. Um, I'd been working as a lifeguard, the pool had closed for the summer. And so I just needed a way to, to make money. And I was like, well, I love working in the kitchen. This is kind of what I turn to when I am stressed and need to, um, sort of think and breathe a bit. And as I was doing that, I realized, oh, wait, I could just do a big bake sale and I could make enough money to buy a plane ticket home. And I did. In two weeks, I wow. um, I sold cupcakes. <laughs> I sold <laughs> enough cupcakes to buy a plane ticket home from Togo. And um, that process helped me realize, oh, this is actually something that I want to do with my life. That um, I saw sort of the, the gap year as a time to to figure out what exactly I wanted to do. And it ended up being this preparation to get there that, um, that helped me realize that. And then once I arrived, um, my, my job was in, I was working in sales. So we had a, a little ship shop that sold a bunch of like toiletries and basic items that we needed and a cafe on the ship. And so I knew that I was going to be going and making coffee. Um, but the day that I arrived, my boss asked, do you by chance uh, know how to bake? Because we've been wanting someone to make baked goods that we could um, that we could sell here. No and way. So, yeah, that, I ended up making waffles and crepes and cookies and muffins <laughs> uh, on a ship in West Africa for a year. <laughs> Fantastic. So I think after that trip, you did end up returning to the States and deciding to go to college and you study anthropology. So how did you land on choosing anthropology and why that particular lens at the time that you were looking to study? Yeah, at the time that I was um, that I went to college, I didn't really see any possibility for working in food outside of working in a restaurant or going to culinary school. And so I had really wanted to go to culinary school. And for a number of reasons, the Lord just made it clear that I was supposed to go to, to Wheaton College. And um, I didn't particularly want to, but there were just so many different points where um, it was clear that that's where God was calling me to. The idea was probably that I would like study something a little bit more practical with more with more job possibilities than just culinary school. So naturally, anthropology is the way to go. <laughs> uh, but I really, I mean, I was I've always been fascinated by people, by um, the ways that people interact with one another. Um, was very fascinated by culture in general. Living in an international community, I was really fascinated by how we function together and bringing together and engaging with people from around the world. Like, how do we, how do we think differently? How does our culture shape the ways that we think, the ways that we cook, the ways that we worship? And so anthropology was a pretty natural fit there. In time, I began to realize that there's a whole sort of pocket of anthropology that does anthropology of food. And so um, that just kind of opened up a whole new world of possibility for me. Wow. Yeah, that was what I was wondering as you were talking is, was food like a subject alongside that you had as maybe a personal hobby or interest? And then meanwhile, you're studying anthropology, or were those things always somehow intersected in your mind? Or were you hoping or expecting that um, by studying cultures and communities that you would inevitably be studying food in some way? Yeah, no, I did not. Um, I didn't make any sort of connection between the two really until my last semester of college. To me, they were very disconnected interests, and I didn't really expect them to overlap in any way. So how is it that you came to wonder about and pursue the connections between food and faith as well? Yeah, so I, in sort of this last year of my time in college, is when I was introduced to anthropology of food and began thinking about food in um, the ways that food itself shapes us and the ways that food shapes kind of our 
our sense of the world, our sense of family, um, the, the, the two are kind of always go hand in hand. Um, at the same time, I had begun attending a liturgical church for the first time. So I was introduced to the concept of liturgy and the ways that our rhythms and structures shape us. Um, and with that was introduced to the concept of the Eucharist as being something more than just sort of a, a small wafer and a sip of juice that was um, done as a purely memorial act. And so I had never considered it as being something that sort of shapes the whole of our faith, something that shapes kind of um, how we understand God and how we engage with God that unites us to this community. Um, and I think with with sort of this introduction to the concept of liturgy and to sort of the Eucharist as something, a, a very powerful shaping force, um, that started to sort of connect the dots for me of food and our relationship to food in the church and outside of the church, that, that there's something here sort of tying these things together. Um, so it really kind of began there, but I, I still wasn't quite sure sort of where those connections would take me. Did you have any mentors at the time that were speaking into that intersection for you, or what, did it feel like something that was you were just discerning from the inside? It was something I was really just discerning from the inside. There really weren't a whole lot of people writing or talking about it at that time. Um, there are a couple of books. Now I look back and I'm like, oh, those books came out about that same time. I, I didn't know anyone else who was doing the same work. So eventually you make a decision to get a master's in gastronomy and a master's in theology. Talk to us about some of those discernment points where you did build in in those particular directions and and how did those years unfold what did that look like talk about some of those decision points yeah so after undergrad I still had I still had a firm desire to work in the restaurant industry and I still really wanted to go to culinary school so my plan was um, I was looking at a few different culinary schools um, and my family had just moved up to Boston and I decided I wanted to be close to them, and so I decided I was gonna I was gonna move up to Boston too and go to culinary school. Probably just three or four days before classes were supposed to begin, um, I got a lovely email from Fannie Mae that was giving me the projected student loan costs once I finished culinary school, and I had just gotten my um, my second job in a restaurant. I worked in, in a bakery while I was an undergrad, and I just gotten my um, another job in a restaurant up in Boston, and was getting a much clearer sense of sort of. Um, what it would look like to work in, in the restaurant industry for life and realized that there was no way I could pay off culinary school by working in the job that culinary school was preparing me for. Um, so I had a bit of a panic moment and um, felt like God was saying, you're going to let this go. <laughs> and so just a couple of days before culinary school was supposed to begin, I let it go. Um, and Immediately after, about the same time, I found out about this program at Boston University um, that was an interdisciplinary food studies program. They offered culinary classes, but they also, um, we took anthropology classes and history classes and um, public policy classes, and, and it wove together food in a much more complex way. Um, it also gave me the room to work with the school of theology and, and think about food in a much more robust sense um, than than what just a culinary degree could do. So my chef at the time said, you're going to be fine without culinary school. You can learn everything you need on the job. Um, you know, you should, you should do this other program instead. Did you have a particular hope for where that was leading at that point? I had no idea. <laughs> um, I knew that I wanted to write. I knew that I wanted to bake. And I didn't know what that could look like. I thought maybe a job in food media. I still, at that point, I was interested in these intersections with theology, but... Um, 
I didn't think that I would find a job in that in any way. I, I really thought like I would be in food media to some capacity. And that was sort of the, the world that I was pursuing. Fast forward, you end up writing a book called We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. Um, and this came out of several years where you were researching dinner churches across North America. So I'm wondering, did the dinner church model uh, or movement find you, or did you find it in terms of your research and how these things started uh, overlapping and coming together? Yeah, I think it it found me, <laughs> I would say. I was I was studying, I had been writing a lot of papers on commensality, which is the social dynamics of eating together. So I was studying meals while I was at Boston University, really thinking about, like, how do meals work? Um, and that just kept sort of opening... I kept turning back to the Eucharist and this thought of the Eucharist as a meal. Um, and so when I first heard about St. Lydia's, which is a dinner church in Brooklyn, New York, I was like, oh, this is this is what I've got to study um, because it pulled together this interest in meals and studying meals more broadly, but then also um, really connecting, just very clearly connecting the dinner table to the communion table. So I got very excited about that idea started telling everyone that I met about how excited I was about this idea and learned that there was also um, a dinner church in Massachusetts. And so I did my thesis um, researching that church in Massachusetts, but from there was just connected with so many other pastors and dinner church leaders. What is a dinner church? Yeah, so a dinner church is a church that worships um, over the course of a meal. So they they hold their worship service at the table um, over dinner. And the dinner churches, as I studied them, were all independent churches who this is kind of, this is how the church gathered. Every single gathering was around the table um, and over the course of a meal. Um, so that's, that's sort of what I classify as dinner churches. But then my work, I, I love to inspire any church to host a dinner service, to host, to host a worship service around the table and over the course of a meal. So it's not limited to a particular denomination or... No, no, not at all. It is, um, I, I studied churches that come from a wide variety of denominations. Um, several, you know, there are some denominations that are really sort of pushing to um, plant dinner churches within them. And so there are a lot of United Methodist dinner churches, a lot of Lutheran dinner churches. Um, and then there's an evangelical church planting network that's doing a lot with dinner churches. So you you will find more sort of in those in those networks, but um, it is definitely a very interdenominational ecumenical movement uh, throughout throughout North America. I actually um, when I first started started researching dinner churches was working on my book. My grandfather, who's a lifelong Baptist, um, he asked me, you know, well. I think I think he was just a little confused and thought that a dinner church was like a denomination that this was a new denomination, and so he was trying to ask you know well well would I would I be able to go as a Baptist? <laughs> I said well yes of course Aww. anyone could go to a dinner church. <laughs> he said well I don't I don't really think that I need to go to a dinner church because we just have dinner all the time. <laughs> it was just a really delightful sort of image of you know this this is. Um, this is a unique sort of movement that's happening in this time that is um, that is taking place in the midst of a bunch of denominations. But at the same time, it's not all that different from what churches have been doing forever, which is just eating together. Yeah, I definitely recommend the book. It's full of beautiful stories and unfolds a lot of revelation around the transformative power of a meal and worshiping at the table as you talk about. I'm wondering... 
how has your research of dinner churches changed how you view your own relationship with God? I perceive in, in reading the book, you visited a lot of different types of churches and denominations and practices within um, the Christian tradition. How did that end up influencing, um, yeah, how you relate to God personally? Yeah, so my my work is very ecumenical, so I work with folks from a, a wide range of traditions, um, and it's been a real gift to be able to see the ways that so many different traditions and practices um, have just all sort of build on one another to, to reveal these different facets of who God is and how God um, interacts with God's people. Um, so I, I find my own home in the Episcopal Church. I really love the very formal liturgical tradition. I love... Um, the, you know, the standing and the bowing and the signing the cross. I love the incense. I love sort of the, the structure, um, which is about as far from a dinner church as you can get. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I think what unites the two, the, 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 um, Episcopal liturgy, um, for Sunday morning and the dinner church sort of practice is this shared deep love and reverence for communion for the Eucharist. Um, what it looks like is very different in the two, but I think that they help to reveal things about one another. And so in this dinner church context, where we're really focused on community formation around the table and the ways that God is at work forming us as community. Um, I think it deepens my, my reverence and love for that same meal that we share on Sunday morning. And at the same time, the, the high reverence and focus on the particulars down to every single word that we use on Sunday morning um, helps to, again, deepen my belief that, yes, God is the one who's present in this in these mystical ways that we can't comprehend. Um, and I, when that informs my experience of dinner church, then um, it becomes an even more beautiful experience as well. In the, uh, the epilogue of your book, you admit that you don't think that every church should become a dinner church, which maybe was hinted at in what you were just describing. So I'm wondering, why, why is that? And what do you think every church can learn from worshiping around the table? Yeah, I don't think that every church needs to become a dinner church, in part because I just don't think it's entirely practical. <laughs> um, but in part, I think this this wide breadth of tradition that we have within Christianity really is a gift that it's, you know, it's it's been formed through, in some ways, yes, a lot of division and a lot of disagreement that's been really um, hurtful and has fractured the body of Christ. But at the same time, it comes out of different people with different experiences, different cultural backgrounds, different personalities, seeing God at work in different ways, and then working out what that means and what that looks like in the context of worship. Um, And that's a real gift when we really see sort of this ecumenical um, interaction as a a way of revealing new things about God, then that's a true gift. Um, And so for that reason, I love all the different expressions of worship. I think that they're all really valuable. But I do think that what what is undeniable to me in Scripture is that meals are so central to the life of the church, that meals are this primary way in which um, God shapes us in community, and that is not uh, that that sort of community is not just an optional add-on to the life of the church, um, that that community formation is central to our worship, that um, I don't think our worship is complete if we if we don't have that community formation as part of the work of the church as well. Um, and I think that that meals, intentional meals as a church, can can do that. And so I, I think that any church can learn a lot from dinner churches about how to take meals seriously as a way to meet with God and for God to shape a community as a whole. So as you were 
traveling around to research different churches, I'm wondering what are some of the surprises that happened along the way as you were witnessing different ways that worship was structured around the meal setting? There's a lot of different contexts that were named in your book. And I'm just wondering the surprises that you saw um, happen within the context of community that opened your eyes or became kind of maybe some pillars within your research discovery. In some ways, one of the great surprises was just how simple it can be, (laughs) that it just seems so simple and almost silly to say, like, we are changed when we sit and eat with other people. But it it is so true that, you know, we we are changed when we sit and eat with other people, especially people that don't look or talk or live like we do. And it is very easy to get caught up in sort of bigger theological debates, bigger um, sort of ecclesiological debates and sort of disembody ourselves and disconnect ourselves from others. But there are ways in which when we are just living day to day eating with other people, it really shapes the way that we see them and care for them and in turn the ways that they can also see us and care for us. Mm. And in many ways, it it allows us to address a lot of these sort of um, deeper relational needs that also touch on other sort of physical needs and spiritual needs um, all at the same time through just this process of living our lives together and over, over the course of meals. Yeah, that's great. So your book came out in 2019, and then along comes 2020, and COVID and the lack of ability to gather, even though you've just now laid out this grand significance of why we need to have meals, you know, Such together, timing. right? And so I'm wondering whether, whether thinking about the church context or just in our homes, what's your just interpretation or thoughts on how this season of distance and isolation um, influenced how we gather or how we should now think about gathering? What, what has come to the surface um, as a result of the last 18 months or so? Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest things that's come to the surface is that it has just made it so um, clear to us how much we need community um, and that there is a lot we can do to approximate community um, while still being separate from one another. There's a lot we can do virtually to take care of some of the like some of the needs that we have. It is good that we can see each other, you know, face to sort of face mediated by a screen. Um, It's good that we can gather in groups-ish while in our own homes. And it's even kind of cool that we can invite each other into our homes while we're all still sort of sitting in our pajamas on our couch. But that can only go so far. It can never fully approximate um, or or meet our need to really sit together in body. Um, And I think that that COVID just made it so clear that, yeah, we we need one another. And we feel that deep loss when we don't have that that time and that connection together. You know, I, I think we see, we are seeing sort of the ramifications of that. Um, and sometimes those ramifications aren't necessarily I- identified by like, oh, the response is that we actually need, we need community and we need people. We just see sort of the hurt that comes out of not being with people for so long. But I think that this really does provide an opportunity for the church to say like, oh, we have the language, we have the structure, we have the means to address this need for, for community. Um, and we, we can do that. If we take this time and use it well, we can, we are equipped to respond to these really deep spiritual and physical needs that people have right now. You used the word earlier, commentality. And that's a new word to me. I think it's speaking to the context of a shared meal or a meal eating together. Um, So 
coming out of COVID and realizing we need to gather, and now I'm laying, layering in the intentionality of food, tell me a little bit more about what that word means and your thoughts around why the actual act of eating together provides that extra layer of intimacy or what, what is happening in, in the, the commensality that you've described. Yeah, so a term that a lot of people maybe uh, or people are more likely to have heard is conviviality. Um, and so conviviality refers to this like joyful process of eating together. So a convivial meal is like a celebration, a meal that other people are gathering together and, you know, it, it, it connotes a, a very fun and good and joyful meal. Um, not all meals are fun and good and joyful. <laughs> not all meals are celebratory. Um, but meals still do something, um, whether or not they are, you know, obviously good. And so commensality um, is looks beyond just sort of these convivial meals and more looks at, like, all meals, what, what's happening when we eat together. The actual process of sitting at a table with other people, um, first, when it comes to eating, you have this very basic shared connection of the fact that we all have the same basic need, and that's the need to eat. Um, That even if you have no other point of connection with anyone else out of the table, you share the same need (laughs) to eat and to consume. Um, And when you are eating, the food itself sort of gives this... um, initial point of engagement and conversation. Um, it's kind of like how if you're at a party and nobody knows what to say, and so someone always brings up the weather, um, because the weather is this communal experience. It's kind of the one thing that you know everyone else can also remark on. Um, in the same way, food provides sort of this, this constant between us that gives us a starting point for a conversation. But the actual process of eating, of taking something into our bodies, of, of taking the life of something else, whether it's the, the life of an animal if you're eating meat or even just the life of, um, you know, the produce was still alive before it was picked and cooked. And um, so we're constantly sort of engaging of this cycle of life and death every single time we eat. And so when we sit with someone else at the table and we take something else into our own bodies that's necessary to continue on our own life. There is an incredible intimacy there. Whether or not we really recognize and acknowledge it, that is a very intimate act that we're sharing with other people. There's a bit of an inherent vulnerability, too, of, of we can't deny the fact that we have this shared need and that if we did not have this thing in front of us that is food, like we would not last very long without it. Um, and so that is sort of a, a starting point of why it is that meals are a really powerful sort of um, inroad to making these these connections with one another. Kendall, one of the the themes or tensions I've heard you identify when you talk about dinner church is the topic of fasting and how it's related to feasting and what those two have to do with each other or how how they were supposed to relate together. Tell me about fasting and feasting in the context of dinner church or just how, what, what's your vision for that relationship or how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, so in sort of liturgical tradition, in the liturgical year, um, these seasons of fasting always culminate in a season of a feast. Um, so we have the season of Advent, which is sort of a, a more contemplative season, but that culminates in this 12-day feast of Christmas tide. Um, and then we have the season of Lent, which is um, a long time of fasting, but it culminates in the 50-day season of Eastertide. Um, and so we have you know, these, these rhythms of fasting and feasting that always play together that help us understand um, how they shape one another. So our, our fasting 
is not solely for the purpose of giving something up um, to make room for God, as though, you know, we somehow could push God out of our lives if we tried hard enough. Um, Rather, fasting is this way of teaching ourselves to hunger um, so that then we understand what it is to be filled by God. Um, But then also in that learning to hunger, we learn to deeply value and celebrate um, and show gratitude for the foods that we then um, take part in in a feast. And so this relationship of fasting to feasting helps us see that um, that the abstinence from something or the fasting from something can help to deepen our appreciation of that thing. Um, but it's not the abstinence itself that is the good. It is that that helps us learn how to really value and, and celebrate the good gifts that God has created. So your work and writing on both religion and food extend well beyond the church context, I think, and into our everyday kitchens. What does it mean to find God in the kitchen? God created us in human bodies and called these human bodies good and reaffirmed their goodness in the incarnation when God came to earth as a human in the person of Jesus Christ. And so our our bodies are good. Our bodies are the only way through which we navigate the world and creation, the, the only way that we know creation. And our bodies are really the only way that we know God. We know God through this, like what we exist in and how we exist in the world. Um, And so with that, God meets us in these deeply embodied ways. God meets us in the mundane moments and practices of our daily lives. Um, And so the kitchen is a part of that. The kitchen is a a place where we we really have to realize our reliance on God, our reliance on on those outside of us, our reliance on the weather patterns in order for crops to grow. Um, And so when we are in the kitchen, it is this space to really slow down sometimes. Obviously, we can't always slow down, especially if you've got like kids screaming at your feet. Um, But it's a way to connect just for a moment with all of our senses um, and to remember that we are in these bodies that have needs and that also experience delight um, and that God is present with us, meeting us, meeting those needs, promises to meet um, and provide for us. But then that God is also the creator of, of delight and joy and pleasure, and that we get to share in that. So you address some of those um, broader themes in a podcast that you just launched called Kitchen Meditations. Congratulations, by the way. And in that podcast, you're really honest about laying out both personal and socioeconomic barriers that are involved in our relationship with food. Can you tell us about some of those and just kind of open our eyes to what is the the dashboard of, of possibilities that are kind of fraught with tensions and limitations, really, even as we try to meet the Lord in the kitchen? Yeah, we all bring so much into the kitchen with us, um, so much history of our own lives, of our families. Um, that that shapes our experience of the kitchen. And so, you know, for many of us, the experience of the kitchen and of cooking and eating is good and also fraught. Um, and it might be so for a variety of different reasons, whether you have whether you have a food allergy and, you know, the process of eating, especially eating with others, could be dangerous. Um, or if you have known food insecurity and have had to live with that, sort of constant questioning of whether or not you're going to have enough food um, to to make it through the next day or the next day. Um, there's also just the the reality that 
the, we find a lot of our identity in the foods that we choose to eat and choose not to eat. Um, sometimes that's cultural identity. Sometimes that is um, sort of, you know, finding strong identity around the things that you choose not to eat. Um, so if you think of people that follow like a vegan diet or a keto diet or, you know, some sort of like particular diet, there's a lot of identity found and shared through what gets what, what you eat and what you don't eat. And I think that, that our tendency towards that speaks to the power of food, but also the ways that food pulls us into community and, and we long to share community through food. And so finding sort of food communities of some way, um, of some form, is, is very compelling for us as humans. Um, but we all have these just very different sort of relationships that we bring into the kitchen, good and, and hard relationships with food. And all of that is going to shape our experience of food how or whether we recognize that God is present with us in the kitchen. Um, so my goal with the podcast is to help people start by realizing that God is present with us in the kitchen and then asking if we realize that God is present with us in even these very mundane moments of our day, how does then that change our relationship to these things that are good and also hard? So one of the other ways that you are introducing um, a relationship with God or even spiritual formation in the context of the kitchen is through baking. You're a professionally trained trained baker, and one of the courses that you offer, I think you've done virtually and in person, um, is something called Bake and Pray. Uh, and it really is mixing together um, baking bread and spiritual practices. Tell us a little bit about how you developed that. What are some of the ways that you see God in the process of baking bread? Yeah, so uh, bread is, of course, this imagery of food that is present throughout all of Scripture, and Christ himself calls himself the bread of life. And so when I started working in a bakery and and making bread regularly, um, it I realized that sort of this bread that I was shaping every morning, I would I would go to church with that bread still kind of clinging to my arms where I would then receive the bread of the Eucharist. And I started thinking, like, is, is there a connection? What is the connection between sort of this bread that I'm baking and this bread that I'm taking in at church? Um, and so that was kind of the initial spark for the Bake and Pray workshop. Um, I have always found, whether I've been baking bread at home or, or baking in the professional kitchen, um, that especially the moments when I'm by myself and just feeling the dough within my hands, shaping it, um, or scoring it or just, you know, measuring flour out, that those are the moments where I feel most um, calmed and, and feel God's presence with me most acutely. Um, I am definitely tend to be a very anxious person. My, my mind runs a million miles a minute. And so um, these very tactile moments where I'm feeling bread in my hands um, are moments that slow me down and, and help me reflect on on how God is also a part of this work um, and brings joy to this work. And so it started for me with I myself used baking as a form of prayer and then realized, oh, well, other people also, you know, would love to learn how to bake or do know how to bake but want it to be a more contemplative experience. Um, And so I teach this workshop to teach people how to bake and hopefully make it less intimidating, very accessible, Um, but at the same time to understand a little bit more sort of these spiritual parallels woven in and how they too can bake as a time of prayer and a a way to meet with God. That's beautiful. So your your work being so integrated is, as we just mentioned, on a podcast, through workshops, through curriculum, through a course. Um, I'm wondering, can you speak to some of your broader hopes for how you think everyone um, 
can encounter God through food and around the table? And what should we be focusing on? How do I approach my next meal? Or how do I approach my next, um, you know, trip to the grocery store or a meal that I'm cooking in my kitchen and see that as something as a possibility to actually meet with God? What are your hopes in that area? My hope is that people will see just very small, simple ways that First, small, simple ways that they rely on God in the times they might not realize it, and then through that to be able to thank God for the ways that God is present with us. So whether that is, you know, on a trip to the grocery store, realizing like, oh yes, there are farmers behind this, and those farmers have a relationship to the soil, um, and that soil is, you know, this incredibly fertile ground that's this, you know, mix of life and death together that's constantly bringing new life out of the world. And that, you know, what what to us might seem like a very simple, like, run to the grocery store for lettuce is actually a part of this much bigger, more complicated process that traces all the way back to creation when God formed humans out of soil. Um, And so, you know, we don't have to think about that whole process every single time we go buy a head of lettuce. But if we could, in the moment, you know, just recognize momentarily and thank God for for this lettuce that we have, um, and to also thank God for the farmers whose whose hands have brought this lettuce to us. Um, it's just one little step of thinking outside of ourselves and and stepping into this much bigger sort of community that we are a part of that allows us to exist at all. Do you have a couple of favorite items that you like to bake for yourself or for friends or? recipes that you gravitate towards in your own kitchen? Yeah, I have. I mean, the bacon pray loaf is what I make most often. Um, it is a pretty simple, pretty flexible loaf of bread that um, I make all the time at my own home and teach other people to make. Um, but I also have a, a recipe for a tahini brown butter chocolate chip cookies that are my favorite. So those are my other go-to. That's awesome. I'm also wondering about resources. Um, Beyond the work that you're doing, um, you, I think, integrate so many different rich voices and scholars. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of just name drop some some of where you're reading or uh, work that you're drawing from that inspires um, your studies and your ministry. Robert Roe Capen was kind of the grandfather of these conversations. He um, he wrote the book Supper of the Lamb. It's kind of a culmination of all of his different fields of work. Um, he's a theologian, but he also writes satire, and he's also a food writer. And Supper of the Lamb is a hilarious and beautiful theological treatise on food. So that's the place to begin, I think, for everybody. But I also am looking to a lot of of theologians, but then also to food scholars. I think the work of Tony Tipton Martin and of Adrian Miller, um, of really looking at just the significant figures who have brought, uh, who have helped to build the American food culture, who often get overlooked in that process is, is really significant. Um, and they are also both people of faith, um, who as, as you engage with their work, you can see that that's present, even though they're not specifically writing in sort of the theological sphere. Um, but then on sort of the theological side, in addition to Father Capen, um, I also love the work of Gisela Kreglinger, who writes on spirituality of wine. Um, and her work with wine and my work with bread, I think, overlaps so much. Um, Angela Mendez Montoya's work is also really, really fabulous. That's great. Lots um, to dig in there. Kendall, to close out our time, I would love to invite you to read a benediction. You are so gifted at giving words that center our hearts um, on God in these practical spaces around food and meals and the kitchen. And so I would just love to invite you to send us out today with uh, your own words. Sure, I would love to. This is one that um, I wrote in the sort of the height of COVID, but I think it's valuable at, at many different times. 
God of communion, you tell us you are with us when two or more are gathered. When community is scattered and loved ones far away, let our liturgies and lamentations bind us through time and space. In your bread, we are never alone. Amen. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.